Greetings and welcome to Hope and Heart and Home on the Range. This is L.J. Ranke, and I'd like to invite you to enjoy with me this simple fact of life. North Dakota and these wide northern plains east of the Rockies and west of the Great Lakes really is and really are a good place to call home. A place with plenty of heart, a place where hope sometimes takes you by surprise. Today we're going to hear more from Lena, then continue our discussion about the NFL National Anthem protest. But first, I want to talk history. I want to tell you about some rattles from a North Dakota rattlesnake that just might have saved a life, maybe two, and maybe even more, over 200 years ago. It's part of some history that runs deep in this part of the world. Lewis and Clark and the Corps of Discovery. The story of these rattlesnake rattles has to do with the youngest member of the Lewis and Clark party, a baby boy born in present-day North Dakota. But since those rattlers involve his mother, she's really where the rattler story begins. But talking about her will mean jumping into an argument or two. I grew up in southern Idaho, which is where the only female on the Lewis and Clark Corps of Discovery was born, before, of course, Idaho was ever a state. This woman was a member of the Lemhi Band of the Shoshone, or Shoshone Indian tribe. Other tribes called the Shoshone the Snake People, which is the term Lewis and Clark most often used for them. That name is where the Snake River, which arcs across southern Idaho, gets its name. When students in Idaho learn Idaho history, at least when I was growing up, they learned the Shoshone lady's name as Sacagawea. When I moved to North Dakota a quarter century ago, one of the scratch-my-head-and-wonder moments was when I heard North Dakotans call her Sakakawea. What? So that's the first argument about this lady. How do you say her name? Linguists disagree. The reason people call her Sakakawea is the fact that Sakakawea is the Hadatsa name, the Hadatsa being the tribe where she was living along the banks of the Missouri River in present-day North Dakota, where Lewis and Clark met her. Sakakawea is Hadatsa for bird woman. Now, before I say more about her name, two quick things about the Hadatsa that I find interesting. The Hadatsa did not live in teepees. They were not a migrating people. They planted crops and lived in small towns and villages in semi-permanent structures called earth lodges or mound homes. An earth lodge was built of wooden poles arranged like a dome over a circular earthen dugout with raised earthen walls. By the way, do yourself a favor. You can see a reconstructed Hidatsa earth lodge today at the Knife River Indian Village historic site just off of Highway 200 north of Stanton, North Dakota, where you can also see fields of bowl-shaped remains of former Hidatsa earth lodge villages, including the one where Sakakawea or Sacagawea lived. A second interesting fact about the Hidatsa is that they didn't use canoes. To cross rivers, they used bowl-shaped rafts called bull boats, a circular assembly of willow rods with a buffalo hide stretched to cover the hole. Now, the obvious question about this young woman is why, if she was born in Idaho among the Shoshone, did Lewis and Clark meet her in present-day North Dakota among the Hidatsa? It's actually a sad answer. When she was about 12 years old, she was part of a Shoshone hunting party camped near Three Forks, Montana, where three rivers meet to form the Missouri River. A roving Hidatsa party attacked the Shoshone camp, killed the eight men and women and all the boys, but took the young girls captive back to North Dakota. But getting back to her name, her native tribe, the Shoshone, pronounced her name the way I learned it, Sacagawea. The pronunciation argument is usually settled with a third option found in the journals of Lewis and Clark. They recorded her name 17 times in their journals, and even though it was often spelled differently, which was the norm for a lot of words and a lot of writings at the time, since the first American dictionary, which led to standardized spelling, was published by Webster in 1806, the same year Lewis and Clark got back to St. Louis. Every time they wrote her name, they spelled it with a G, suggesting that those who knew her called her Sakagawea. But there's a glitch with this option also. Years later, Clark compiled a list of the members of the expedition and what had happened to them. He wrote that she had died in 1812 in present-day South Dakota, and on that list, he spelled her name with the letter J. 
Nevertheless, in academic and government circles today, Sacagawea is the accepted spelling. Clark's notation about Sacagawea's death, and yes, to keep things simple, I'm going to use the Shoshone pronunciation from here on in, prompts the other major controversy about her life, the date and place of her death. Clark had been informed that she died in South Dakota at about age 25 or 26. However, her time on the expedition made her the stuff of legends. In 1933, a University of Wyoming professor gathered these legends and made popular the idea that Sacagawea left her husband, moved back west, assumed a different name, married into the Comanche tribe, and died at an old age having lived her life under a different name in present-day Wyoming. However, given Clark's passion for historical accuracy and the lack of hard facts to support the Wyoming version, and given the fact that courts made Clark the legal guardian for Sacagawea's second child, a daughter named Lizette, at a very young age, an action which would only be possible if the child's mother had died, Clark's report of Sacagawea's early death is regarded by historians as correct. Sadly, because there are no other references to Lizette, it is almost certain that she died just before or soon after she was placed into Clark's care. But what about those rattlesnake rattles? Let me back up and I'll get there. After Sacagawea was kidnapped and brought back to North Dakota, the Hidatsa sold her and another of the captured Shoshone girls to a French-Canadian fur trapper named Charbonneau, who bought both of them to be his wives. When Lewis and Clark arrived at the Hidatsa village in late October 1804, they needed translators. Charbonneau was hired to translate for the Hidatsa, they also hired Sacagawea because, as a Shoshone native, she would be invaluable when they met the Shoshone nearer the Rocky Mountains. At the time Lewis and Clark met her, Sacagawea was about 17 years old and five months pregnant. She quickly gained the respect and admiration of the expedition members. Her husband, not so much. But that's another story. With winter fast approaching, Lewis and Clark knew they would need winter housing. They set up a temporary camp and started building a small wooden fort, built in a triangular shape, by the way, downriver and on the opposite side of the Missouri from the Hidatsa village where they had met Sacagawea. Charbonneau and Sacagawea also lived at that encampment. The fort was named Fort Mandan after the neighboring Mandan Indian tribe. On Christmas Eve 1804, the fort was finished and the Corps moved in. The flag was raised and the Corps celebrated Christmas Day in its new home. By the way, when you visit Knife River Indian Village, be sure to visit the reconstructed Fort Mandan about 20 miles east near Washburn. You'll thank me. On February 11, 1805, less than two months after the Corps moved into the fort, Sacagawea went into labor. It was her first child, and it proved to be a difficult childbirth. As that cold winter turned into evening, a French fur trapper named Jusson, who had been hired to translate for the Mandan tribe, and who had a Mandan wife who had borne several children, was at the fort. Knowing that an extended labor put both Sacagawea's and her baby's life at risk, he turned to Lewis and told him that he knew the remedy for a difficult childbirth. Sacagawea needed to swallow the crushed rattles of a rattlesnake. Lewis decided it was worth a try. Since people always cut the rattles off a rattlesnake when they kill it, Lewis found a set of rattles in the fort and gave them to Jusson, who pinched off two of the rattlesnake rings, crushed them into pieces with his finger, mixed them with water, then gave the mixture to Sacagawea to drink. Within ten minutes, her first child, a son, Jean-Baptiste, or John-Baptiste Charbonneau, was born. Now, I can't tell you for sure that those rattlesnake rattles saved Sacagawea and her son, but I can tell you that had that difficult delivery not ended as it did, either Sacagawea or her baby boy, whom Clark nicknamed Pompey, like the Roman emperor, and called Pomp for short, might have died. And had they died, the Corps of Discovery would have faced far greater danger. The presence of Sacagawea and little Pompey made it clear to any tribes the expedition met that this was not a war party. 
That knowledge invited a calm, unarmed response. And so it's possible, ladies and gentlemen, that those rattles taken from a rattlesnake somewhere near the Missouri River in 1804 saved a mother and her child, and because of them, their soon-to-be traveling companions were very possibly spared from later bloodshed. When we come back, I'm going to introduce you to Pedro and Mingwa's wives and tell you about Lena's visit to her sister in St. Paul. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Last week I told you that Lena had gone to visit her younger sister in St. Paul and shared with you about the eventful blizzard-delayed train trip back to Williston, which resulted in some household guests, which resulted in some lifelong friends. I introduced the two husbands Lena met on the train, but I never introduced their wives, all of whom shared the home of Oli and Lena. Pedro's wife was named Margarita Guadalupe. That's right, eight syllables, Margarita Guadalupe which Oli, who liked using as few syllables as possible, shortened, with her permission, of course, to Lupe. Now, you may not believe me when I tell you the name of Mingwa's wife. Her name, as is often the case for Chinese names, was actually two single-syllable names, Li, which means gentle, and Na, which means beautiful. That means that for those months that th these guests lived with Oli and Lina, there was in that one household, Lina, one word, the Norwegian hostess, and Lina, two words, her Chinese guest. The fact that Lena had a house guest named Lina was not lost on anyone. While it made everyone smile, it also meant that no one ever forgot the name of the only Chinese woman living in Williston. I want to tell you about a traumatic experience shared by Lina and Lina, but before I do, I want to tell you a little about Lena's time with her younger sister, the librarian, in St. Paul. So let me introduce you to Elsa, Lena's younger sister. Elsa had left Williston years earlier intending to join the circus. I don't have the time today to tell you how she ended up becoming a librarian, but I can tell you that Lena loved her week in St. Paul. She and Elsa visited the Minnesota State Capitol, and Lena loved walking up and down both of those majestic marble staircases. North Dakota had nothing to compare. But the memory from that trip that stuck with Lena was her visit to the Cathedral of St. Paul. Elsa lived just a few blocks west of the cathedral, so on one of the mornings she didn't have to work, the two went for a mid-morning walk and found the cathedral open and almost empty. Lena had good Catholic friends back home in Williston, but she'd made it a practice never to talk to them about religion, unless it was about volunteering to bring a hot dish to a Catholic funeral, something she was always glad to do, and something the Catholic ladies never turned down. Lena's hot dishes could serve a dozen hungry men. Lena had to admit to herself, after her visit to the cathedral, she came home a little jealous of her Catholic friends. That cathedral in St. Paul was nothing short of, well, magical, although magical didn't seem to Lena to be a proper word to describe a Christian church. The cathedral itself was immense, but what struck her is that it seemed even bigger on the inside than it did on the outside, and it was beautiful. The interior was gray stone, but it wasn't drab, and it made the colors and the patterns of those huge stained glass windows all the more dramatic. And Lena felt like she'd stumbled upon a secret world when, behind the massive ornamental bronze wall that formed a half-circle behind the main altar, she discovered a curved hallway lined with a series of smaller altars, each dedicated to a different country with its patron saint commemorating the nations from which so many immigrants had come to Minnesota. There was even an altar dedicated to St. Patrick, whom Lena always thought of, in her Lutheran sort of way, as her favorite saint. Some parts of the cathedral like Catholicism confused her, but the overall effect is that it made her want to pray. And so when she sat down by herself in a pew in that big empty room, Lena did something she almost never did. She broke what she thought were the rules. She said a Lutheran prayer in a Catholic church. 
She prayed fast because she didn't want to get into trouble. She prayed for Oli. Please, Lord, please make sure he eats good while I'm gone. She prayed for her Sunday school students and most especially for little Carl. Bless him, Jesus. Trouble always seems to find little Carl. She said a prayer for her sister. During their time together, Elsa had commented more than once about a widower who had started coming into the library several times a week. He wasn't a Catholic, which was a good thing, but he was a German Lutheran. How could that ever work? God, please give Elsa a husband, but please make him a Lutheran from Norway or maybe Denmark, but not Germany and not Sweden either. Lena's time at the cathedral prompted something else that took her quite by surprise. She found herself starting to daydream about visiting Italy. Italy! Who would have thought? But daydream she did. It took some months, but she eventually worked up the courage to mention Michelangelo in a conversation with Oli, and he didn't even blink. Even so, when she got back from her trip to St. Paul, Lena had very little time to daydream. She was hostess to four house guests. Lena actually loved having house guests. She really did. But in all of her busyness, she had completely forgotten about the box of books Elsa had sent home for the Williston Library. The box had been put in the basement and forgotten until the day Lena screamed. Lena was a dear. She loved cleaning as much or more than Lena. She also loved to cook and loved taking her turn with Lupe and Lena making suppers for all three couples. It was hard for Lena to allow guests to make supper for her and Oli, but she knew it was good to let them help, so she did. She spent her time not making supper, sewing or working on quilts. Lena had the most wonderful habit. When she cleaned or when she cooked, she sang, very quietly, always in Chinese, to herself. Lena never understood a word of what Lena sang, but her soft, crystal-like voice around the house was like, well, it was like hearing wind chimes at night, or, or like being woken up by the sound of birds singing through an open window. Late one afternoon, while Lena was dusting the living room, she heard Lena singing as she came down the stairs from her bedroom, then through the kitchen, then down the stairs into the basement. It was Lena's turn to cook, and she was no doubt going to the pantry shelves stocked with canned vegetables from last year's garden. Lena had developed a taste for this wonderful American vegetable, pickled beets. Suddenly, Lena heard a scream from the basement. For soft-spoken Lena to make such a noise, something terrible must have happened. As Lena flew down those stairs, she breathed a quick thank you prayer that Oli had overridden her protests and put in that handrail. She knew otherwise she'd have gone headfirst down those stairs. When she got to the pantry shelves, there was Lena standing, her hands covering her mouth, muttering in Chinese. Her eyes were as big as saucers. Lena, Lena asked, what is the matter? What is wrong? Soft-spoken Lena pointed to the base of the shelving, then to the corner of the room, then to the bottom of the cellar door, all the time muttering. Her English was gone. It was all Chinese now. Lena was confused until Lena added another motion. Instead of pointing, she moved her fingers rapidly to imitate the crawling motion of a small animal. And then Lena knew. Had there been more light in that basement, Lena would have seen Lena go pale and then would have seen Lena's face blush to a bright red. Lena had seen a mouse. A guest had seen a mouse in Lena's home. Maybe it was because being a hostess was taking a toll, or maybe it was because Lena's sudden scream had so startled her, but Lena did something even Oli had almost never seen her do. She burst into tears. She grabbed her apron, lifted it up, buried her face in her hands, and began to sob. Lena was so startled to see her usually reserved hostess show such emotion that she became quiet, and then she did something she had not done before. She reached out and put her hand on Lena's shoulder, and then she stepped forward and put her arms around Lena, and then gave her a hug and then she began to cry. Lena understood. Yes, she'd been surprised by the mouse, but she completely understood that mice can get into even the cleanest of places, and she understood, silly as it was, Lena's embarrassment. She understood Lena's tears, and so she cried with her friend. 
There they stood, Lena the Norwegian and Lena, her Chinese friend, hugging each other and crying. A few moments passed. The crying began to subside, and Lena stepped back slightly. Thank you, she said. And then she turned red all over again. And then she began to smile. And then she began to smirk. And then Lena began to laugh. And Lena responded in kind. And they both knew why they were laughing. They were laughing at themselves. And as they laughed, Lena and Lena hugged each other all over again. Two women laughing and hugging between the pickled beets and the stewed tomatoes. And all because of a mouse. A minute later, they'd regained their composure. Lena reached over and grabbed the jar of beets she'd come down to get. And that's when Lena looked down and noticed the box of books. The books! She stooped down, picked up the box, and followed Lena up the stairs. Tomorrow, she said, tomorrow we go to the library. She put the box of books by the door going out of the kitchen where they would not be forgotten, then went back to the living room to get on with her dusting. As she picked up her dust rag, she paused. She remembered back to her time at the cathedral, standing in front of the altar dedicated to St. Patrick, and wondering at that time if it was true that St. Patrick had driven all the snakes out of Ireland. And then she had another thought. I wonder, she thought, I wonder if they have mice in Italy. And then she went back to her dusting. Oh, give me a home where the mice never roam. We know God wants mice staying outside. If you find such a pest, tell St. Patrick the blessed. Drive them out, please, or just make them hide. Home, may it be clean. Dust the room, scrub the toilet and floor. If you clean every day, you'll be able to say, Come on in when folks knock on your door. We'll be back after the break. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we're back again, walking on holy ground. By holy ground, I don't mean something religious. I mean something that goes to the heart of what it means to be human, what it means to be community. Holy ground often means walking through pain. This holy ground has to do with opposing a particular evil, racism, which diminishes what it means to be human and what it means to be community. In the last two programs, I've suggested that the current attempt to oppose racism by some NFL players to take a knee during the national anthem, an action spearheaded by former NFL quarterback Colin Kaepernick, is a shortcut solution which, despite its emotional appeal, diminishes our understanding of what it means to be human and what it means to be community. Today, I want to talk about another aspect of the error perpetrated by the NFL protest, what I call the I deal the deck and I get a pass error. I only have time today to talk about the first half of that error, the I deal the deck half. I deal the deck summarizes the tendency only to cite the evidence that agrees with one's position and ignore any opposing evidence. Colin demonstrates this ideal the deck error in a tweet he sent over two years ago on the 4th of July, 2017, while visiting Ghana, the country in West Africa formerly known as the Gold Coast, where his ancestors, who were brought to America as slaves, originated. This was Colin's July 4th tweet from Ghana. How can we truly celebrate independence on a day that intentionally robbed our ancestors of theirs? To find my independence, I went home. So the 4th of July, according to Colin, is less to be remembered as the day in 1776 when the American colonies declared their independence from Britain, but more to be remembered as the day when the U.S. intentionally robbed blacks of their independence. Let's look at that statement in light of some present and some historical facts. 
Colin tweeted that he found his independence in Ghana. If you conduct even a brief study of human rights abuses in Ghana, do you know what you'll find? Currently, Ghana is under watch by human rights organizations because Ghana's historic treatment of the mentally ill is to shackle them, literally putting them in chains and chaining them to walls. Likewise, Ghana is under surveillance for the ongoing use of forced child labor in its fishing industry, in mining, and in agriculture. Independence? Consider this. Almost three and a half million people in Ghana are members of the U tribe, U spelled E-W-E. Because members of the U tribe fear being punished or cursed by their gods, for their protection, U families and communities send young virgin girls involuntarily to U temples and shrines to place those girls to work as temple slaves. Those girls work the fields of the temple priests, but they very often are forced to serve in the priests' bedrooms. Though it is done in the name of religion, thousands of Ghanaian girls and women are slaves today. In one instance, a former female temple slave who gained freedom reported that her temple priest had at least 200 female temple slaves. Ghana declared such slavery to be illegal, but not until 1998. Yet this black-on-black slavery remains widespread. Did Collins' tweet about finding independence in Ghana note any such abuse against blacks in Ghana today, whose independence is denied them? Collins refers to the country where so many blacks suffer abuse as his home, while in the same breath summarizes as racist the history of the country where so many of those abused blacks would come to find the freedom and opportunity that are denied them in Ghana. If Ghana is in fact where independence is found, then it's fair to ask, what is the immigration pattern between Ghana and the United States? How many Ghanaians, people from Ghana, nearly all of whom are black, have come or want to come to the United States because of the opportunities and the independence that await them here? And how many Americans, black or white, hope to go to Ghana for the opportunities and independence that await them there? The answer, ladies and gentlemen, makes it obvious. It's a one-way immigration pattern. The number of immigrants from Ghana, and I have met many, all of whom are black, who come to the U.S., makes it clear that Ghanaians see this country that Colin often portrays in racist terms as the place where they can find greater freedom and opportunity, even as blacks and immigrants, than they could ever know in Ghana. Collins' tweet says that he found his independence in Ghana, his home. Then where is Collins' home today? Ghana or the United States? Collins speaks of July 4th as the day intentionally set aside to rob our ancestors of independence. However, his tweet fails to note an important fact about that date. It is a cruel truth that while Americans declared their independence from Britain, blacks remained slaves in America. But do you know where else blacks were slaves on July 4th, 1776? In present-day Ghana and throughout much of Africa, slavery, black-on-black, black, has been widespread throughout Africa for centuries. Yes, the history of slavery in the United States is a sorrow, but Ghana and nations throughout Africa have a similar history, blacks enslaved by other blacks, and for far longer than blacks were enslaved in America. And that history of black African slavery extends to more than just slave ownership. Those slaves who were captured in Africa and sent as slaves elsewhere in Africa or put on ships for the Americas, who pursued, captured, kidnapped, and sold them. Other blacks. We often fail to remember that blacks in Africa come from different cultures and ethnicities, in the same way that whites in Europe, English, French, Russian, Italian, differ culturally and ethnically. Just as European groups have warred against each other, African groups and tribes have gone to war, and in Africa, the victor often enslaves the loser. At times it happened on a large scale, at times on a much smaller scale, by local leaders who raided nearby villages. But there is also this startling fact. Capturing blacks, especially from the interior of Africa, was often not the result of war. Capturing, transporting, and selling blacks from the interior of Africa became an African industry spearheaded entirely by blacks. 
A fundamental but an often never mentioned fact about the African slave trade, whether the final slaveholder was a white man in America or a black man in Africa or an Arab man in a Muslim country, is that the first rung on the slave industry ladder was black-on-black violence and profit-making, which long preceded slavery in America and continued long after. Because of that shameful history, in 2006, the government of Ghana, where Collins' ancestors originated from, formally issued an apology for the historic role Ghanaian ancestors had in the slave trade. Ghana admits that a significant part of its own history is that blacks were systematically denied independence, captured, and sold by other blacks. None of that history found its way into Collins' 4th of July tweet. Given Ghana's admitted past policy with slavery, it's fair to ask, how and when did slavery become illegal in present-day Ghana? And who stopped it? It wasn't the blacks who stopped it. It was the whites. In 1807, England, which had already outlawed slavery for itself, governed present-day Ghana as a colony and declared slavery illegal. That declaration was met with intense opposition by black slave owners and by black slave traders who supplied the world with slaves. They wanted to preserve slavery both as a practice and as an industry. Ghana's own admission and the facts of African history make it clear the history of black slavery doesn't stay neatly inside racist, white-against-black boundaries. Facing such facts about the history of black slavery is not a dismissal of American slavery or colonialism or of racism, but let us be honest with the facts, both past and present. Let us deal an honest deck, which includes the fact that blacks systematically lose their freedom in Ghana today, and that one's ancestors who were slaves in America might well have been made slaves in Ghana or elsewhere in Africa. Let us be honest that slavery, which Colin raises in his tweet as an American sin, doesn't fall into simple white-against-black categories or represent a guilt unique to America. Slavery spans throughout history and across cultures. We all have guilty ancestors. There is much more I hope to say about the historical beast called slavery, to deal ourselves the full deck of truth about its span. But let me close with this plea. Let us examine the injustices of the past and the present, but let us do it not as a you-against-me issue, but as an us-against-ourselves issue. We're in this together. Let us fight injustice together and resist the temptation to shortcut justice by laying blame at the feet of any one group, ethnicity, or country. Such shortcuts have an emotional appeal because they offer simple shortcut solutions, but they finally deal a false deck and shortcut the truth. Let us be honest with ourselves about the truth and on that basis build up what it means to be human and what it means to be community. Next week, we're going to visit Lewis and Clark, and I'm going to share a surprising connection between our world and theirs. I'm also going to tell you what happened when Ole took that box of books to the Williston Library. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. I look forward to sharing with you next week for more hope and heart and home on the range. Goodbye and God bless. <laughs>